Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Six years after Vice President Cheney dismissed it as merely a personal virtue, conservation is back with a vengeance. I think that folks are finally getting it, that we can use energy efficiency as a cornerstone of sustainable energy future policies. I mean, that that has to be there. Also, scientists consider deliberately changing the climate to cool things down. And singing the post-Katrina blues, one New Orleanian's lament. I didn't even go to the parades this year to, to enjoy Mardi Gras. I mean, I was so busy trying to piece back my life. Maybe I'm suffering from some sort of depression or something. I don't know, but I haven't been a psychiatrist or any of that kind of stuff. I just go on to get back to normal. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Six years ago, when Vice President Dick Cheney tried to solve the energy problem, he came down on the production side of the equation. More oil and more gas. As for conserving energy, Cheney dismissed that as a sign of personal virtue. A nice gesture, perhaps, but no basis for national policy. Well, times, prices, and attitudes, even among some in the Bush administration, have changed. As Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, officials are now calling for cuts in the consumption of oil and gas, and there's talk in Washington of new efficiency standards for autos, appliances, even light bulbs. And we know all the jokes. How many so-and-sos does it take to change a light bulb? Well, turns out we've had the question backwards. It should be, how many light bulbs does it take to change us and our energy-wasting economy? If every home in America switched out just one incandescent bulb with a compact fluorescent bulb, it would be the equivalent in CO2 savings of taking a million cars off the road for a year. Just one light bulb. That's Kateri Callahan at the Washington think tank Alliance to Save Energy, getting excited about something that most consider pretty dull, energy efficiency. And she's right. The numbers are exciting. If we changed all four billion of the country's sockets to more efficient lighting, it could save $10 billion in electricity costs a year, and it would eliminate the need for 50 coal-fired power plants. That's why Callahan's Alliance is part of a negotiating team with lighting industry leaders, Philips, GE, and Sylvania, to craft federal law that would make the switch. We're working hard to try to develop technology-neutral standards that'll get the most inefficient, the cheap, if you will, 25-cent light bulb off the market. All sides agree, in principle, that it's time for lighting standards to change. But there are some sticking points, chiefly which products would be affected and how many years it would take. Australia has already announced a phase-out of incandescent bulbs in five years, and Canada's working on a similar proposal. California's moving toward doing it. If other states follow, the industry could face a hodgepodge of different standards. Richard Upton of the American Lighting Association says that motivates industry to seek a national law. Because we're talking about interstate commerce, and to have 50 different kinds of ideas and regulations and labeling requirements all of a sudden becomes something that business and industry can't respond to very well. 
and has more confusion for the marketplace and for consumers. So working to get eventually a federal bill makes the greatest sense to me. Upton says some consumers are already buying more efficient lighting, mostly the compact fluorescents known as CFLs. But Noah Horowitz of the Natural Resources Defense Council says most people won't buy them as long as the cheaper but wasteful bulb is on the shelf. People just look at first cost and they're overlooking a very critical thing. That four-pack of CFLs will save you $100 over the life of the bulbs. And in addition, they last 10 times longer. So about 90% of the sockets still have incandescence in this country. And we're probably going to require a standard to help shift that. The light bulb sheds light on larger issues with efficiency, the vast potential for energy savings, and the vexing problems in achieving them. Oh yeah, energy efficiency is, is the invisible man of energy policy. That's Bill Prindle at the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy. Prindle says the country's staring at a three-headed hydra of energy threats national security, high prices, and climate change. That's sparked interest in cleaner sources. But Prindle says even the most optimistic outlook for renewable energy barely keeps pace with our growing energy appetite. You know, we've got to have more moderate demand growth. If any of our great ideas for clean energy, be it solar, wind, biomass, any of those energy sources are going to have a hard time keeping up with demand if we don't get aggressive on efficiency. Prindle says one of the best tools is something called the Energy Efficiency Resource Standard. It requires utilities to wring waste from energy production and reduce consumer demand through incentives for more efficient appliances, heating, and the like. Several states have adopted it. He'd like to see the energy bill that the U.S. Senate's working on include one, too. Senate Energy Chair Jeff Bingaman says it's the direction the country should be moving, but probably works best at the state level. Well, I think, frankly, uh, there's some complications in it uh, when we start uh, trying to legislate it nationally. I think that what we're probably going to wind up with is trying to put some things in the bill that will encourage and incentivize more states to do this. Bingaman's bill includes new standards for appliances that could bring big energy savings. And if the light negotiators reach agreement in time, he'll make phasing out the incandescent bulb part of the bill, too. Another bill cooking in Congress could raise fuel efficiency for autos for the first time in decades. And the National Academy of Sciences just issued a statement calling on the U.S. to push energy efficiency at the upcoming G8 Summit of Economic World Powers as a way to combat climate change. Add those up and you understand why Kateri Callahan at the Alliance to Save Energy is so excited. I think that folks are finally getting it, that we can use energy efficiency as a cornerstone of sustainable energy future policies. I mean, that, that has to be there. The U.S., which consumes more energy per person than any other country, could finally be seeing the light on conservation. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. The flame from a candle is supposed to shed light on a subject. And in the case of Brown's Ferry Nuclear Power Plant in Alabama, it sure did that and a lot more. On March 22, 1975, a single candle nearly burned one of the reactors at Brown's Ferry to the ground and exposed just how unsafe the nation's nuclear power industry was at the time. The plant actually continued operating for another 10 years before it was shut down in 1985. But now the ill-fated reactor is once again about to go nuclear and begin generating electricity. Peter Gwynn was the science editor for Newsweek back in 1975 and wrote about the Browns Ferry reactor fire. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good to be with you. 
Well, take us back to that fateful day, March 22nd, 1975. It, it literally started with a candle. It, it did. Um, and a couple of technicians were in one of the corridors just using a candle to, uh, to sniff out air leaks, which was the, uh, the normal way of doing things at the time. They found a leak um, in uh, an area where a lot of cables were going into the control room of the plant. And um, they decided to uh, repair it with polyurethane foam, which was, again, the standard way of doing things. Yeah, but the foam, it turns out, wasn't fireproof. Well, when they tested, um, two things happened. First, they realized that they hadn't sealed up the leak. And second, the, uh, the leak that, uh, uh, that was there sucked in the flame and set the polyurethane on fire. And then the fire really uh, took off despite all their efforts to control it. And it was right near the control room. It was, and smoke filled the control room pretty quickly. <laughs> but this was sort of like falling down a flight of steps. Everything from then on started going wrong. All the safety uh, systems, or at least the first series of safety systems, just didn't work. Um, the, uh, the pumping of the emergency water system started, and then it stopped. And um, the water in the nuclear reactors, which, uh, which protect the uh, reactors from uh, melting down, the water gradually started to uh, drop and drop and drop. It dropped from about uh, 200 inches above the, um, the fuel rods down to just about four feet. And um, there, was, was, there was real panic in the, um, in the plant at the time. They had to scramble the, the reactor. They, they shut, shut it down using the last backup system they had. They shut down the reactor. Um, even so, it continued to heat up. But finally, they, they did manage to close it down. And after seven hours, the fire went out. It's kind of weird using a candle to inspect a, a billion-dollar nuclear reactor. Well, that wasn't only the, the only weird thing, Bruce. Um, they found later that their technicians had not been trained in, um, in safety procedures. Uh, they had not tested the polyurethane phone just to check whether or not it was flammable. And um, a whole series of safety issues, uh, of safety checks, had simply not been performed by the authorities at Browns Ferry. What was the, the mood of the country back then in, in 1975 to, to um, nuclear power? There were 56 reactors operating. That's correct. Um, nuclear power seemed really to be the, uh, the power of the future, the energy of the future. And the country was, uh, was pretty well disposed towards it. Certainly, there were some nuclear critics. There were some critics of the nuclear industry. But um, they generally did not have um, too much credibility with the public. That fire changed everything. Peter, thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. Former Newsweek science editor Peter Gwynn wrote about the accident at Unit 1 of the Browns Ferry nuclear power plant back in 1975. All three of the reactors at the plant continued to operate for another decade before they were finally taken out of service. Units 2 and 3, which weren't affected by the fire, went back online in the 1990s. And now, more than three decades after the near disaster, there are plans to bring Unit 1 back online. The Tennessee Valley Authority owns the Browns Ferry plant. Craig Beasley is a spokesman. Craig, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. So what have you done to improve safety at Reactor 1? Well, we have spent a lot of time over the last 20 years uh, working to make sure that we provide safe and reliable power to the people of the Tennessee Valley. You know, we, when we brought the units offline in 1985, we did a tremendous amount of work to revamp not only Browns Ferry but our nuclear program. And since then, the units have come back and operated very well very safely, very reliably to provide power. You've also spent a lot of money, what, $1.8 billion to bring this reactor back online? 
That's correct, $1.8 billion, but what we're bringing back is probably the newest old plant in the nation. We've done a lot of work to uh, ensure that the hardware that we have at the plant is not only uh, current, but it's uh, uh, in good condition and that we have the people and the programs and the processes in place that are going to make sure that we operate operate this uh, unit safely and reliably. Wouldn't it be cheaper to just have built uh, a new one from scratch? You know, when TVA faced with the growing power demands in the area about five years ago, we looked not only at new generation, but, you know, purchase power, the cost of uh, other fuels like uh, fossil and gas, and uh, we looked at nuclear power. And this was the most uh, best business decision that we could make financially, operationally, and environmentally for the area and for us. Uh, any plans to use uh, candle tech to, to check for air leaks in the future? <laughs> you know, the... Uh... The history of nuclear power is we have a lot of operating experience behind us now. You're, you know, we're talking uh, something 30 years in the past. We've had 30 years of operational experience, and the industry itself has proved to be safe and reliable. If you look at Browns Ferry now, we certainly have, you know, a reactor that's uh, been there for a long time. But we have lots of digital and state-of-the-art instrumentation and controls, and the way we operate these plants now, maintain these plants now, is certainly state-of-the-art. Craig Beasley is a spokesman for the Browns Ferry Nuclear Power Plant in Alabama. Mr. Beasley, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Coming up, deliberately changing the climate to reverse global warming. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Mark Twain once famously quipped, everyone talks about the weather, but no one ever does anything about it. Well, that may no longer be true. Faced with the potentially dire consequences of climate change, some scientists are now openly discussing the possibility of managing or geoengineering the climate. The idea is to have a plan B, a backup plan, just in case reducing greenhouse gases isn't enough to prevent runaway global warming. Bill Gale has written about some possible Plan Bs in an article entitled Climate Control, Nine Ways to Cool the Planet. It appears in the latest issue of the IEEE Spectrum magazine. Bill Gale is the Director of Strategic Development at Microsoft's Virtual Earth. Bill, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Bruce. So it seems to me, Bill, that, uh, you know, since the industrial era, we've been running sort of a, a giant, unintentional global climate experiment. And what I hear you say in this article is that what we need is an intentional intervention, an intentional experiment in the planet's climate. Well, I think we, we mistakenly believe that climate change is a one-time problem with a one-time solution. In fact, humans have been influencing climate for millennia. And within the last, perhaps, century, we've acquired the ability to really influence climate on a global basis within the time frame of a human life. So what I'm suggesting is that that ability is going to be with us from now on, and we have a choice. We can either choose to use that inadvertently or blindly, or we can choose to manage how that influence occurs. Uh, some of the proposed ideas in your article are um, not so far-fetched, actually. You've got reforestation, uh, sequestration, but others are, are really far out, kind of wacky sci-fi stuff. 
like space shields and space dust? Well, that's right. There's really a, a range of technological uh, approaches to addressing climate change. Some of them are uh, perhaps more accepted, uh, more mature than others, but some are indeed uh, much further out, uh, ideas that are perhaps just uh, early ideas, just as uh, Jules Verne's early ideas about space travel ultimately uh, led to uh, the ability to get to the moon. Well, tell me about the space dust. Well, it's uh, an idea for scattering dust in space that would reflect some of the sunlight and reduce the amount of sunlight that reaches the Earth. Alternately, you could uh, scatter similar dust, perhaps sulfide particles, in the stratosphere. Uh, that's, uh, in some ways, a more viable approach because it would uh, last longer in the stratosphere and uh, be more effective. And space shields? Space shields, uh, there are several ways to do that, but uh, the general idea is that you put up some sort of reflective or refractive objects in space that scatter sunlight before it uh, reaches the Earth. I know that there's one proposal here that's more than just a proposal. That's the one for iron dust. Um, what's that about? Well, the idea is that plankton growth depends on nutrients in the ocean Plankton take up carbon dioxide as they grow, and once they die, those plankton sink to the bottom of the ocean and sequester uh, that carbon dioxide. So the idea is that by adding nutrients to the ocean, you enhance the plankton growth and therefore increase the carbon uptake. There's a group off the coast of Ecuador that's doing just that right now. That's right. There's some groups that uh, see this as a commercial opportunity with the need for solutions to climate change. And uh, they're going after this quite aggressively in terms of testing out the approach, seeing whether it's economically viable. Well, what happens if there's, you know, an oops, <laughs> you know, unexpected consequence? And uh, it triggers a catastrophe. We get it wrong. Well, that's absolutely the biggest concern. And climate change is a, a huge, huge problem. And our ability to deal with it is going to require that we look at very, very difficult and challenging solutions, uh, many of which have risks associated with them. And as we develop the ability to um, pursue some of these solutions, we're going to have to also develop the ability to manage those risks quite carefully. But who decides to take those risks? Um, you know, we decide that we need uh, more rainfall in the United States, which means there's drought in Africa. This is an international problem, and it affects all countries. Uh, we need to develop the international mechanisms to allow us to answer those questions. But right now, don't we have an international treaty that prevents um, science from going in and changing the climate or changing the weather? You can't use weather as, as a weapon. That's right. And, of course, any new technology runs the risk of being used as a weapon I think that we have to face that and we have to actively pursue the opportunity so that it is used for good rather than bad. If we decide to just do nothing, it's certainly possible that some nation will grasp the opportunity and use that technology for bad. But couldn't some uh, you know, climate terrorist group use this technology then? Well, I think refraining from understanding how this technology could be used doesn't prevent people from using it in the wrong way. They will seek to do that, whether or not uh, we're trying to use it for good. So it doesn't uh, send any trepidation through your spine when, when you think about climate ma management or, or mismanagement? Oh, it sure does. Uh, I think we're into a new realm here where we're exploring some very new things. But I think it's a 
something that we've backed ourselves into where we need to look at all possible solutions. And no solution is going to be easy. No solution is going to be without risk. Uh, this is just one more thing that we need to be looking at, and we shouldn't pull it off the table before we understand whether it is a viable solution or not. Well, Bill Gale, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Bruce. Bill Gale is Director of Strategic Development at Microsoft's Virtual Earth and serves on the U.S. National Research Council's Earth Science Group. His article, Climate Control, Nine Ways to Cool the Planet, appears in the latest issue of the IEEE Spectrum magazine. You can find the link to the article at LOE.org. week, we have two reports on the frontiers of finding our fine-feathered friends. In a few minutes, I pod, therefore I bird. But first, we head for the urban byways of the San Francisco Bay Area. That's where our once-endangered bird is now making a comeback from the brink. In 1970, there were only two known nesting pairs of peregrine falcons in all of California, and none east of the Mississippi. Peregrines are known for their breathtaking dives, plunging to earth at over 200 miles an hour. But the pesticide DDT nearly decimated the falcons. Thirty years on, people have helped peregrines make a remarkable recovery, and now many of the birds are nesting right in the middle of American cities. The drama of their recovery is due in part to the development of new urban habitats and technologies, which are turning some city folks into the falcon-obsessed. Nancy Mullane reports. If you turn and look, this is the south side of the building, and at the top of it, you can see this white box, and that's the nest box. Yvette Lowen is chief deputy city attorney for San Jose, but instead of sitting in her office chair looking at briefs, she's standing on the ground outside City Hall looking up. It wasn't always like this. About 18 months ago, Jose and Clara, a pair of peregrine falcons, set up housekeeping on a ledge on the side of the City Hall building. Now, Lowen says, she's not the only one transfixed by the raptors and their three new baby chicks. I have yet to run into a city department where people weren't talking about the birds. They call me up and leave me messages on my phone. They talk to the city attorney and let him know that they're very interested in what's going on. And uh, I know that the mayor is very interested in the birds. Lowen says people are talking in falcon speak, using words like fledge and clutch, which means eggs. Now that the eggs have hatched, three impossibly fluffy white balls of heads and wings wobble inside the nest, preparing for their first flight. Sixteen stories below is asphalt and traffic, and that's what's motivated this attorney to use a week of her vacation time to stand with other recent converts on the streets below. There's a group of us that are very dedicated and will want to make sure those birds are safe. It's something that you know, I, don't, I, I, I think there will be many, many, many people out when they think those birds are going to take their first flight. One way Lowen and the others track the fledglings' daily developments while they're stuck at their desks is through a 24-7 webcam. It was set up at the nest by the UC Santa Cruz Predatory Bird Research Group so people could watch the birds live, minute by minute. Sometimes demand overwhelms the system. 
It can crash. Uh, it has crashed. <laughs> Claire Stavely manages the webcam for the research group. She says the Falcon Cam is getting more than 700,000 hits a week from as far away as Iraq. It's always a balancing act to try to make sure that we have enough server capacity that everybody can watch all the time. Now that the raptor is breeding successfully on its own, researcher Glenn Stewart says the webcam is the public's window onto the world of this exceptional bird. For 30 years, we've been looking at these birds through binoculars and spotting scopes, and now for the first time, anybody in the world with an internet connection can watch the intimate family life of a peregrine falcon. And just people are thrilled by it. Part of the thrill, Stewart says, is that webcam wildlife is unedited. They see exactly what happens. They see when the eggs don't hatch or when they hatch and the babies die. And so that's a little bit hard sometimes. But people come to me and they say, Glenn, I didn't know I was a bird watcher until I saw these birds. Stewart makes dozens of visits each year to nearby schools. He says it's one way of guaranteeing the future protection of the species. On a recent visit to a middle school, Stewart brought along a six-year-old falcon named Curtis. Well, well, don't go behind. <laughs> Actually, don't. They, they don't like to feel surrounded. Stewart moves in and puts on a thick leather glove. He holds his arm out for Curtis. The student's eyes are wide. Curtis carefully steps onto the glove. Then in one smooth movement, Stuart slips a custom-made leather hood over Curtis's eyes for the half-hour trip back to the research center. While the San Jose group watches and waits for their three fledglings to fly, in San Francisco, another group of falconistas keeps tab on a couple they know as George and Gracie. Cheryl Wolfkale says she was bit with a falcon bug after birders came into the law firm where she works. The bird people came in, wanted to look out our windows, and I was thought, this would be interesting to explore, find out what's going on. And I've been wandering the streets at night and coming out on the weekends. and <laughs> More nice than I care to admit to. <laughs> As she talks, her eyes scan the sides of buildings. Then, like people bar hopping, Wolfkale and her friends, Kanit Cottrell and Glenn Neville, soon leave the downtown streets and head for the next stop, the end of a pier on the bay. They set up two long-range scopes and focus binoculars and cameras, hoping for a sighting. We do have a relationship. Cheryl and I talked to her. We talked to Gracie <laughs> and George. We jump <laughs> up and down and yell and scream when we see them mating. We are quite the sight. <laughs> but, but we also are fully aware that they could care less what we think. <laughs> As the sun starts to set, the group begins to talk about packing up and going home. But it turns out that's just talk. We're still here and there's always next year. Okay, there's one flying, to the, going back to the east. There it is, flying. It's going up to the, oh, yes. Did you get it? It landed right on the scaffolding. Yeah, set it up. This kind of love may be one-sided, but it may well keep peregrine falcons alive and well. Now Gracie's hopping back there. For Living on Earth, I'm Nancy Mullane. They're back in the corner in the dark now.
We found the love shack. <laughs> You can find a link to the Falcon Cam at LOE.org. We don't know exactly, but estimated hatch date for the San Jose Chicks is June 5th. Okay, birders, this bud's for you. White earbuds, that is. You know, those telltale signs of musical isolation that cut people off from the rest of the world. Well, what if the iPod could instead connect you with the great outdoors? Enter commentator Noah Stricker, who has repurposed the iPod for iBirding. The little gizmo more than proved its worth one spring morning in an impressive demonstration in a patch of ponderosa pine forest. I was on a mission for a sighting, and after I decided which songbird I wanted to see, I dialed up the pre-programmed call on my iPod, broadcast the song through an external speaker, and bada-bing, there it was, a male chipping sparrow, hormones pumping, singing madly from the branch in front of me. Like magic, dial a bird. In truth, iBirding is far from magic. You have to know exactly where the birds are and when they'll be there. Knowledge of vocalizations helps immensely, as you should be able to differentiate between an actual warbler song and a recording broadcast by the guy across the way with his own iPod. Occasionally, though, luck is all it takes. On another occasion, it was near midnight, and I was standing alone in the inky blackness of an Oregon night. A creepy silence blanketed the scene. I had a tip that barred owls were in the area, and I wanted to see one. In the past ten minutes, however, nothing had stirred. It was time for Plan B. I dialed up barred owl on my trusty iPod and played the recording, a raucous who cooks for you all, twice. The silence intensified. Suddenly, a loud swoosh sliced the air above my head, and I aimed my light to find the owl sitting not five feet from my hat, staring down with somber, watery black eyes. I was out of there in a snap and home to bed before it could blink. As a tool for modern birders, the iPod is both handy and reasonably inexpensive. It goes with your state-of-the-art binoculars, spotting scope, digital camera, long camera lenses, cell phone with pre-programmed rare bird alert numbers, tuna sandwiches, and B-R-D-B-O-Y license plates. You can get everything but the plates. Sorry, those are mine. Don't expect an iPod to make you an elite birder. It can't replace actual knowledge and experience, and it takes a fair amount of time to set up. On outings, I follow common sense with my iPod, trying to be considerate and unobtrusive of birds' activities, especially in heavily birded areas, and never using playbacks for attracting any species that is threatened, endangered, or of special concern. As a birding tool, the iPod can be a great way to reach out to the world around us, and that's cool not just for the iPod generation, but for any generation. Noah Stricker is the associate editor of Birding Magazine. He was named Young Birder of the Year in 2004 by the American Birding Association. His work is featured in the new book, Good Birders Don't Wear White, 50 Tips from North America's Top Birders.
can hear our program anytime or get a podcast or a birdcast at LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And you can always chirp in with your comments at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our carrier pigeon address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. Or squawk on our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Coming up, a virus hunter tries to prevent the next pandemic. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Many of the deadly infectious diseases that plague people first infected animals. The bubonic plague came from infected rats. The Spanish flu pandemic came from birds. And scientists have tracked HIV, the AIDS-causing virus, to chimpanzees. Still, researchers don't know precisely how viruses jump from one species to another or what triggers a viral disease to spread like wildfire. One of the scientists searching for answers is Nathan Wolf, a biologist at UCLA. Dr. Wolf calls himself a virus hunter. We hunted him down in his home in Venice, California, but... Much of the time, you'll find him in some far-flung place trying to prevent the next pandemic by detecting viruses before they make the leap from animal to people. Hi, Dr. Wolf. Uh, Hello. How are you? I'm doing okay. I have a bit of a cold. Uh, Virus, probably. One of the many viruses on the planet that we actually probably uh, won't ever identify. Why not? I mean, what would you do to identify this virus? Well, certainly one of the questions for us is, is a virus worth identifying? Um, One of the the really amazing things about being a biologist right around now is we have the tools to understand viruses and to identify them, yet there's so much amazing things that are completely unknown. The world is absolutely filled with viruses. So um, as we sort of start, we have to think carefully about which ones are we going to even bother to identify. And frankly, my cold virus is probably not amongst them. Now, the federal government and drug companies spend big bucks developing vaccines for for viruses that cause things like malaria and hepatitis B and C and HIV. You take a a much different approach. Oh, absolutely. Um, And, of course, one of the major objectives of my research is to try to identify what could be future pandemics. And instead of waiting for something like HIV to spread around the world in a way that's going to be very, very difficult to manage, that we could actually try to understand these agents before they became major diseases. And so if you kind of think of this process as the process of a whole range of different viruses and other agents which are present in animals, um, and then human beings who we have our own diseases, um, but we also have the potential to gain new diseases, whether it be SARS or Ebola or HIV, you know, you name it. These are all things that are new. But the question is, how do you catch that in the process? How do you actually watch one of these viruses jump from one species to the next species, and particularly from a species um, of animal into humans? And our idea is that we can actually try to catch this portal or bridge by focusing on people who have a lot of contact with animals. And that may pe- be people who are working in, uh, in markets where they sell live wild animals. It may be individuals who are hunting or butchering wild animals. But whenever you have this sort of hunting and contact 
um, you're going to have a tremendous potential for transmission of agents in all different sorts of tissues. So we really think it's a very important interface for the entry of new, of new diseases into humans. Well, how does that happen? Uh, how does a virus, say, start in a pig or a snake and then jump to a person? Very honestly, part of that is what we're still studying and trying to determine. But um, often, you know, our vision um, in, in the States or in the West of a hunter might be somebody who's decked out in army fatigues and, you know, wearing an orange vest. But in most parts of the world where people are hunting for subsistence, um, you can often hunters that we go out with will be wearing flip flops and a pair of shorts. They'll be butchering with a machete. So you can just imagine, if you think to yourself, how many times have you cut yourself in the kitchen while you've been slicing onions or garlic? You know, over course of weeks and months and years of day-to-day -day interaction, there's going to be a lot of potential for maybe cutting yourself or having a, a cut on your back, carrying an animal and having some blood have contact. Um, so there's really a tremendous amount of potential interaction. If you think of this in terms of millions of people hunting and day-to-day -day interaction with these wild animals. And, and sometimes there can also be, you know, you can get a bite if you find an animal that's still alive in a snare. So that there's a lot of potential, I think, for really close contact between us and animals through hunting. You spent six years studying hunters in Cameroon. Um, what did you find? Well, we found a number of things, and those studies are actually uh, ongoing, and the project uh, continu continues in Cameroon. But we, uh, we've looked for a range of different agents, whether it be uh, viruses transmitted by mosquitoes like dengue and yellow fever to hemorrhagic fever viruses like Ebola. Um, some of our most interesting findings have actually been in the area of retroviruses. And so this is the class of viruses uh, of which HIV is a member. And so obviously, unlike my cold virus, this is one that we really want to know if there's new viruses entering into the human population. So um, we've actually found a number of new retroviruses that have entered into humans. Um, and it looks like hunting is probably a very important mechanism for that entry. Hmm. What was the, the name of the one that you found? Well, we found a couple. Um, the, one of the viruses we found was really pretty much unknown in humans other than a few cases that had been seen in people working in sort of laboratory situations. But this is a virus called the simian foamy virus. And uh, frankly, it was, it was quite a surprise. I remember uh, actually the moment in the laboratory when I was doing the tests and actually came across the definitive evidence that these viruses were, were in our hunters. And it really was a, an unusual and surprising discovery. I myself really didn't expect to see it. I thought if it occurred, it was quite rare. But in fact, we find that these viruses uh, are probably in thousands, if not tens of thousands or more individuals um, who are have this close contact with, uh, in this case, particularly primates, monkeys and apes. Does it make them sick? Well, you know, we don't know about that yet. Um, retroviruses like HIV and HTLV, which are the two really known important retroviruses in humans, they actually are chronic viruses. So unlike, for example, Ebola or flu or SARS, which sort of make you sick and either you die or you get better, these are viruses which are, take a long time to make individuals sick. Um, and for the foamy virus, we're actually out there right now working with these individuals who, um, who you know, generously contribute their time um, to participate in these studies to be able to really understand, do these viruses spread? Do they cause disease? But we're still really just uh, at the beginning of the process of understanding what the importance of these agents is. But of course, that's the big idea. You discover it early. 
and then you try to trace through what's going on with the agent to see what's happening with it. When you go into the field, you, you've got to take blood from these people, right? Yes, absolutely. So how do you get them to trust you? Well, we have long, I mean, we've been working in Cameroon now since 1998, 99. And what we have is we have long-term interactions in the villages that we work in. And for example, through assistance from the U.S. Embassy in Cameroon uh, and other sources, we've been able to actually build in some of these communities health and conservation outreach centers. So we have a long-term interaction with these locations, but I think it's very, very important. You can imagine in any community that anybody's living in, somebody knocks on your door and start saying, oh, we, you know, we'd like to talk to you about various activities and, and we'd like to sample your blood. This is something which is a long-term process. And to do it properly, you really have to have a tremendous amount of buy-in from the, you know, the leadership within the village and from the individual hunters. Is there some responsibility to them, though, an ethical responsibility, not just to follow them, but perhaps treat them medically? Oh, absolutely. And we provide a really substantial amount of medical care for populations that we work in. Now, of course, in the case of fomivirus, we still haven't determined if there's any disease caused by fomivirus, so there's really no treatment to do. But um, there's a tremendous amount of counseling as to possible transmission. And, uh, you know, we, you know so we spend a lot of time sort of dealing with people who are in these communities. So, Nathan Wolf, um, how many potential pandemics are there waiting to happen? Oh, well, let's just say um, there'll there'll be plenty of business uh, for for myself and people doing my line of work for many years to come. Um, Things are changing. We're becoming more urban increasingly. We have phenomenal globalization, which has all sorts of benefits, but also has the the fact that uh, a virus that emerges somewhere in the middle of Central Africa today can be in Seattle, Washington tomorrow. So the level of connection between us and the animals around us and the sorts of populations and transport which allows these things to become established uh, is changing very quickly. There do seem to be patterns about where these diseases come from. And so that just in the same way that we need to push forward forecasting of weather, we try to understand what are the patterns of earthquakes and hurricanes, just like that, disease pandemics are a form of natural disaster, and there's no reason at all why we shouldn't be moving these things forward and at least attempting to come up with predictive systems and forecasting systems. Uh, In a hundred years, when people look back at this period of history, they're going to be saying, wow, you know, they really cared about these diseases, they really were trying to control them, but they you know, but they might have really been missing the boat. They, they really waited for these things to become major pandemics. They didn't try to understand the nature of them and to try to control them early on before that happened. Well, Dr. Wolf, it was good speaking to you. It was really nice speaking to you. Thank you very much. UCLA biologist and virus hunter Nathan Wolf is the lead author of the article Origins of the Major Human Infectious Diseases. It's in the current issue of Nature magazine. Since the devastating hurricanes and floods that struck New Orleans almost two years ago, life in the Big Easy has been anything but. As part of our continuing coverage of the Gulf Coast after Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, we take you this week to the Holy Cross neighborhood in New Orleans' Ninth Ward, home to Rodney Dejwa. He and his family have lived in the city for generations. His house is on a street that dead ends into the rise of a levee holding back the Mississippi River. Dejwa was a financial analyst for the city, and before the storm, his neighbors knew him as a guy who took extra care to keep his neighborhood neat. 
But now, the neighborhood is pretty much gone. Across from his property is a school where people used to park their cars. And that's where Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet met Rodney Desjois one recent spring evening. This is the trail I'm in. I'm about sick and tired of the trailer. I am housing the trailer with my wife and my chow-chow dog, a full-breed chow-chow that has become my shadow. I can't move without him. He wants to follow me everywhere, and I have to step over him every time in the trailer or bump into my wife. It's, it's really an obstacle course living in a trailer. The trailers sweat, and near the windows there's algae and mold growing. The carpets, they are damp all the time. Uh, you can leave them, leave the windows open when you're not home to, to help with that, but on rainy days you have to close the windows. So you come home and it, it smells all musty and everything. Pre-Katrina, this was sort of a, like a lover's lane or something in the evening. So you'd get people that came and frequented this area and they'd just discard stuff out in these parking spots. And oftentimes it was items that you didn't want to touch with your hands. People all the time ask me, who do you work for? My response is, I work for you. I work for me. I mean, this is for us so that we can enjoy a, a respectable lifestyle and we don't have to live in filth and clutter, and, and that's why I do it. After Katrina, started out with just my neighbor and high in the area then we got another neighbor on the side street and now we have a fort but there's nobody for five blocks on this street after this block it's really mind-boggling really um, but I can't blame anyone if they found better uh, living conditions I mean this was the big easy at one time that was one of our monikers but now it's a big struggle it's it's really a hard it's really hard living here. I had just completed a renovation of my home in 2000. I was, I was really ready to, for the good life. I mean. I involved in physical activity on the weekends. So <clears throat> I'd greatly like, like to get back to that. I haven't been able to because I can't, I can't even focus on social, social activities. I haven't been able to enjoy Mardi Gras. I haven't been able to enjoy the Jazz Fest. I mean, and I am a diehard. I go to every day, every, all seven days of the Jazz Fest. And 
I just don't enjoy it anymore. I don't see the same people at the Jazz Fest. It was it was like a reunion every year. I'd see people from all over the country that I'd see every year. I didn't even go to the parades this year to, to enjoy Mardi Gras. I mean, I was so busy trying to piece back my life. Maybe I'm suffering from some sort of depression or something. I don't know, but I haven't been a psychiatrist or any of that kind of stuff. I just go on to get back to normal. Now, this, this is a great view here. I, I, uh, this is the Mississippi River. Um, you can see downtown New Orleans, the skyline. You can see the Crescent City Connection, uh, the twin bridges there. I really, I really enjoy living back here. I've been back here since 1980. I never thought about living anywhere else, but fear of the unknown has me thinking you know, along those lines. Our profile of Rodney Desjois was produced by Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet. Next time on Living on Earth, she would have been 100 years old this month. We commemorate Rachel Carson, author of Silent Spring. We spray our elms, and the following springs are silent of robin song. Not because we sprayed the robins directly, but because the poison traveled step by step through the now familiar elm leaf earthworm robin cycle. The life and legacy of Rachel Carson on the next Living on Earth. This week by striking up the band. This clanging and thumping and trumpeting is performed by the Thai Elephant Orchestra. The pachyderms have been trained to create their own music using tools confiscated from illegal loggers. David Soldier and Richard Lair recorded this piece that the elephant's trainers call Three Bot Opera at the Thai Elephant Conservation Center in Lampang Province, Thailand. Living on Earth's clanging, thumping, and trumpeting is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley O'Hearn, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigen. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for playing along. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800 
225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.